Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, we are back in the building, and we can't. We actually can't go with a very energetic start because before the show's even started, we're experiencing technical difficulties. So uh, I'm just going to have to ask right off the bat, uh, Mr. Host, can you even hear me right now? I can hear you loud and clear, sir. All right. Well, we can hear each other. That's a start. Hopefully the guests who are listening in can hear us. Uh, as well, because that's actually what we're here for, not to talk to each other. Uh, the call-in number, if you do want to call in and be a guest on the show, of course, 646-564-9909. Uh, and we are going to start off the show with a little news. What do we have in the newsroom today, Mr. Host? Well, Mr. Producer, as you are aware, uh We've been experiencing technical difficulties um, in the last year, uh, I'd say probably for 95% of our shows. I only remember one show where we didn't have a technical issue, and it's the same issue that we had. Just a little background. We had no problems for the first two years. Then that third year, we started having a problem with getting kicked off of their server, and then uh, they said they fixed it. They figured out what the problem was, and we had about a good seven-month run. And then it came back, and then we had a a, a year-long run. Um, and then I would say the last year has been every show we've had an issue with getting kicked off the server. So um, in my correspondence back and forth with them in the last you know month or so, um, their recommendation, which I'm going to follow, is to they Blog Talk was purchased by uh, an entity called Voxnet, V-O-X-Net, N-E-T, and they had an additional um, they had an additional two people, I mean, additional uh, entity that was with them called Spreaker, S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R, and they said that's a lot 
more robust in terms of its infrastructure, and they recommend that we go to that format. Um, so I'm going to look into doing that. Um, it won't happen on our next show, which will be on September 11th, but the show after that, we should be up and running via uh, the Spreaker uh, platform. Okay. I like that. And, and we'll see if that. we'll Hopefully see if that we'll see if that solves it. If that does the trick. All right. All right. So all right. Well we'll keep our fingers crossed. Um yeah. We'll we'll see what happens. All I'm right. a positive per- I'm a- gotta- Go ahead. I was, you know, I say I'm a, I'm a positive person. But uh, I'm not going to put any negativity out there, but I'm just going to play it as it goes. See see what happens. Okay, okay. Well, we'll send the positive energy into the universe and uh, keep our fingers crossed that our technical difficulties will be a thing of the past. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Do we Next have anything topic. else in the news, sir? Well, other than that, uh, I was on vacation. And, and what and exactly a, were you doing on vacation? Well, what I usually do the majority of the time, which is drive, and this one was no different, I was fortunate enough to be able to knock a 38-year-long waiting list item off of my bucket list. Oh, my goodness. Um, and that was visiting the Boeing aircraft plant up near Seattle, Washington. So we loaded up the wife, two dogs, left everyone else behind, and uh, headed up to the Pacific, the great Pacific Northwest. Um, and of course, even though that was the ultimate destination, there were, you know, stops along the way, uh, but one unfortunate thing, but I don't necessarily consider it unfortunate because to me, when you go on a trip, everything that occurs and happens, is in, for me, it's just part of the adventure. But um, for those who don't know, especially uh, my East Coast uh, brethren, that uh, we have wildfires out here in California, in eastern Washington, and in the western part of Canada, which is totally screwing up the... Uh, the air quality, and you know, when you get up north and you know, way north in California towards Eureka and Redding and all that that part, when you get near Oregon, um, you know, you can barely the skies are just hazy. It's filled with smoke. You could see the smoke as it's coming down, you know, resting above the trees on the in the, on the mountainside, um, and it's just not a a, a pretty sight to to see, uh, and certainly not breathe. So, right, right. You, do, you, you have to spend a lot of time indoors, obviously, and um, got to make sure the dogs aren't breathing too much of that stuff in. So that was the only quote-unquote negative part. That as we were heading up north, we were heading into the smoke zone of the fire. So, the, you know, the state of Oregon, unfortunately, is getting it from both ends. They're getting it from California. They're getting it from Washington. It's blowing it from north. Western Canada, so it's just a big mess. So we were we were very happy as we uh, crested over 
the uh, Siskiyou mountain range at the top of California coming down into the state uh, from Oregon. And you could see way out there some blue sky. And we finally got to it once we got in the Bay Area. Hmm. So, but the Boeing plant was amazing. Yes, yes. Tell us about that. Amazing. It was amazing. As a plane buff, it was amazing. And what worth the 38-year wait to visit. Well, that's amazing. amazing. And what and what aircrafts did we uh, were we able to lay eyes on? We visited the plant that makes the seven four seven, the seven eight seven, seven seven seven, and the seven six seven. So all four are their wide body. And for those who don't know, the wide bodies are the ones that have two aisles, two aisles in the plane. So that's where they make all of their wide body aircraft. And to see them in various stages of build, um, you know. First hand with my own eyes was uh, something, something to behold. And, of course, the building that they're being built in is the largest building on the planet. So when you look down on the plant floor, uh, even though obviously the aircrafts are huge and so they stand out, you see very little people because they're all covered by various things. I mean, you might see an odd person walking around, but... uh, one of the major questions, the most frequent questions that they get is, you know, there's supposed to be 35,000 people in this building. Where are they? We don't see them. And they said, because it's an optical illusion. If you were down on the plant right. floor looking up, you could see all the people. But looking down, you can't see them. It's like they said, it's like looking down at a uh, an ant colony. Yeah, yeah. You can't really see all of them. But once you get down to their level, you can really get lower. You can really see them, and um, so. But it was it was nice. It was very nice. Very nice. Oh man, that's that's incredible. Yeah, uh, all the longtime listeners of the show know uh, that you are a plane enthusiast because that's something that we regularly talk about. Uh, and then to compact compact that with the idea that. Uh, You've been waiting for so many years, decades, in fact, uh, and then you finally got to see it. That's pretty exciting stuff. How uh, how long was the tour? How long were you in the plant? Ninety minutes. No, okay. you can't bring any. No electronic devices allowed. No phones, cameras, nothing like that are allowed in the plant. Um, and they have to bus you over from one location to the plant. And so even while you're being bussed over, you're going across the airfield where they have a lot of... Now, when I drove up and parked, I was parked next to the airfield, and I saw all these planes out there but belong, you know, with different airline insignia on them, American, United, China Airlines, uh, you know, et cetera. So I was wondering, I said, hmm, I, I know these planes don't fly out of this airport, you know, this airfield, so I was wondering, but once we got on the bus and the guy explained that these aircraft just came out of the paint booth. So the, they've had their airline insignia and colors are just painted on them and then eventually okay. what happens is the airline has to send their own pilots down to then fly them out to wherever they're going to keep them. i see so i see now that, i, I do have a, to give a i'm just going to say i do have Go to give ahead. a shout out i do have to give a shout out to uh my wife and uh, Sheba, the Rhodesian Ridgeback, because she was very well behaved on the trip and then for my wife because 
she doesn't give a rat's behind about planes. <laughs> yeah, 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 okay. So, you know, having, you know, the fact that, you know, one, she came, you know, on the trip, um, and then when we parked at the, you know, where we stayed up in, in Everett, Washington, it's a town right outside Seattle where the plant's located, at a campsite, and she stayed behind. That day I went to the tour, she stayed behind with the two dogs at the campsite, and um, while I went doing what I was doing, um, so that was very nice of her to want come, uh, allow me to go, uh, you know, by myself because you know she's not into that stuff. She, you know, you know, all she cares about when she flies is that the damn plane better stay up in the air when and when it's supposed to and land when it's supposed to. That's it. And and That's maintaining right. the death maintaining the death grip on my arm. That's about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's it. Uh, interesting, um, you know, and I guess something you don't think about unless unless you visit the plant. But uh, of course, the planes once they've been constructed need to be flown out. So uh, I mean, you said the the company, whatever company bought the plane, will send a pilot to fly it out. But that's funny that you think that 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 product, right, that merchandise actually has to be flown to its destination. So. Uh, by the plant, there's got to be a considerable amount of land for a runway, huh? Yeah, they got a, a, a you know ten thousand foot runway there. So because those planes, even though they've just been painted and they're drying, they're not ready to be flown out yet. They're after they come out the paint booth, they still have to do what's called ground testing and then flight testing. And then once they pass that, and then the FAA and NTSB come out to do their independent inspection, and once they pass that, then they're ready to go to the airlines. So they okay. still got a ways to go, even though they're sitting out there looking pretty. They got a ways to go before you or I can sit in them and fly. Now, what what takes place during a ground or a flight test? Ground ground testing, they're testing all of the the avionics, the electronics, to make sure everything is working. And then flight tests, they need to make sure that the thing can fly and do everything that they tell the airlines that it can do. And, you know, and of course they test for various, you know, situations. Because I think the biggest thing people need to know is that when, you, when you're in a plane or you see a plane take off at, the, at an airport, you just need to know that... No plane that carries passengers can be cleared to fly with passengers until it has passed certain testing. And one of the biggest ones is that when that plane lifts off the ground, whether it has two engines, three engines, or four engines, when that plane lifts off the ground and those wheels just get up, they're one foot off the ground, and if it has four engines and three engines go out, that plane must be able to fully load it with fuel and passengers with only one engine, continue to take off, and get up to a safe altitude before it can circle around and land. If it can't do that, it can't carry passengers. Hmm. So, I, so I hope that makes people feel better about flying. <laughs> a little bit. I'll tell you who's not feeling good is the is the the individual responsible for doing the test flight. Oh, those before, pilots. Before the test, they... <laughs> pilots love it. They love it. They love it. Oh man. That that could not be a job for me, let me tell you. But nevertheless, you had a safe journey up. You saw what you needed to see, a safe journey home. Uh, so all in all, that checks that checks the boxes for a good vacation, huh? Yep. Yep. 
Excellent. Excellent to hear. All right. Well, uh, I mean, you know, we might add a little something into OCG news. We've got a we've got a new uh, a new tradition, shall we say? Yep. Uh, and so perhaps I'll fill the audience in on this. Uh, for some of our longtime listeners, graduates, I know some folks back east, east listen as well. We used to have what was known as the Daytop Olympics. It was a very popular annual event where uh, different daytop facilities from around the country could come and compete in various games. Uh, and uh, basically for bragging rights, but also, hey, you know, it's a part of recovery, the social aspect of it, getting together, exercise. And uh, just a little competition and, and overall fun for everyone involved. So annually, uh, all the day tops would prepare for and uh, and become very excited about the residents, specifically the uh, the day top Olympics. And uh, since we well, actually, I'd say even toward the tail end, maybe 2003 or 2004 was the last time as an adolescent facility we would send clients to New York for the Daytop Olympics. Uh, but, uh, so then around that time, no Daytop Olympics, then we became our common ground in 2007. And, you know, uh, with the exception of some inner facility, uh, you know, we have a couple of different sites. So with the exception of those sites competing randomly in a volleyball game or a softball game or a football game, we haven't really had any kind of annual tradition. And so this year, during our OCG Independence Day, uh, we had a whole kind of sporting carousel, if you will. We had a ping pong tournament, pool tournament. We had a, uh, a daytop slash our common ground Jeopardy history event. Uh, and we had a cup uh, created in honor of the host here, for those of you listening, uh, unbeknownst to him, by the way, as well. Uh, this was completely behind his back, and uh, let's just say uh, I paid for the cup on a credit card, and so this was out without knowing even if the check request was going to get approved. Uh, so I might be biting the bullet on this one. Nevertheless, uh, we created uh, an OCG, the Orville L. Roach Executive Cup, and uh, that is now we, we, we had our first annual Independence Day Games and uh, that is going to now take place every year. Where we've got tournaments uh, with these different games, and the facility that wins the tournament that year will get to host the cup at their site. So uh, the clients can think of a place to display it, and they have bragging rights for that year. Uh, in addition, the cup, we will treat it similar to the Stanley Cup, and that the facility in the year that that facility won will be etched into the cup for history. So... Uh, the very first games were won, I am proud to say, by the Redwood City site, which is the site that I work at and work for. And uh, a lot of the clients are already expressing great pride in the idea that that 2018 Redwood City engraving will have them uh, etched into the history books, so to speak. So that's a little bit of OCG news. Yeah, I was. Uh, I thought that was fantastic. Uh, I'm humble, of course, that the cup has my name on it. I, f I certainly wouldn't have approved that, but uh, be that as it may, it is what it is. Can't do anything about it now. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, we were thinking of the uh, 
Larry O'Brien, and so uh, the Vince Lombardi, obviously, that's just a famous coach of the NFL. Uh, some cups in sports are named after the commissioner. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we, we thought it, or I thought it fitting that none other uh, than your name, and then followed by the, the executive cup, uh, it's very, very befitting. So, uh, so that's a little bit of OCG news. It, it was a great event here at the facility. Uh, the, the sites had fun, and, and we all uh, we all had uh, great pleasure in starting a new tradition. Sounds great. We what about some, to, N- some, some quick NFL yeah. news? Okay, I'm not going to drop the how about them Cowboys soundbite as the host would normally do at around this time when he hears the NFL drop, but I will ask, were you able to catch any preseason games? Do you care about the preseason games? Did any of your teams suffer that devastating injury that every fan fears during a game that doesn't count? Uh, Almost. We almost lost Zach Martin. Uh, with a knee injury, but it turned out to just be a hyperextension and he'll be ready for the start of the season. However, we did lose the starting center, Travis Frederick, to a diagnosis of an autoimmune disease, Guillain-Barr syndrome, which uh, something that affects the nerves, nerve endings. And it, he's out indefinitely. So Wow. Not sure what impact. I don't think it'll have much impact in terms of overall, but you know that's the only major loss that they've suffered um, so far. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, we got to knock on wood because there's still one game this Thursday. But for those of you non-NFL fans out there, this Thursday marks the last game in the preseason that every team plays. Everyone does it on a Thursday night league-wide because the start of the season is then ten days later. Uh, and so in the fourth preseason game, you generally don't have to worry about injury because all, none of the starters traditionally play. Um, so if your team made it through without a big injury, knock on wood, you seem to have escaped unscathed this offseason. Uh, I can say the same for us. We did have a couple of starters get nicked, you know, nicked up and banged up, but uh, everyone's projected to be ready week one, which is the – which is the ultimate goal. So uh, excited. Are you excited for the season to start? Yeah, I am excited. But I haven't heard this year like it was last year. It was like every day somebody was going down with a torn ACL, torn Achilles, you know, separated shoulder, broken clavicle. It's all kinds of craziness. This year it's been very few and far between, at least from what I've heard. But I haven't been as plugged in because – so. No, you're absolutely you are absolutely correct. I was actually going to mention the same thing. I feel like last year specifically, you were getting an update maybe once every three days. That either during a game or even just during training camp, somebody blew out an ACL, somebody blew out an Achilles tendon. Uh, there were season enders all over the place, and this year, uh, you know, uh, the the major one was the 
there was a safety for Tennessee, the, the starting strong safety for the Titans, and uh, and he blew out a knee, I believe, done for the year. Uh, but it was a strong safety market. In fact, there's still some good safeties out there um, that can be signed. So they were able to sign um, a good safety to replace him. But, yeah, no, outside of that, it feels like it's been a relatively injury-free uh, offseason, which, which is actually great because uh, you want, you know, the, the best games you're going to get on Sunday and the best NFL to watch is the one where all the teams are healthy and you got the best going up against the best. You know, the the NFL is a lot better off without an Aaron Rodgers or a Drew Brees going down and, and having to watch a team that would otherwise be very competitive uh, be mediocre at best with a backup. So, Yep. Sounds good. All so, right. All right. What, what do we got on tap? Well, what was it, about a couple of months ago where we had uh, something occur – that kind of spurred this topic on for you? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I would say generally speaking, the the topic of the quote-unquote, I'm doing the, the air quotes on the radio, which they say to never do because no one can see you doing it, so I'm expressing <laughs> it. Uh, but that difficult client, um, there's always, there seems to be always one in the population uh, or more. that whenever, or, or more, yeah, or more, yeah. but at least one mm-hmm. uh, that is the, the topic du jour for any staff meeting. Uh, you know, we can't kick this person out fast enough. Uh, you know, we need to make this announcement tonight. Uh, what What is this person still doing here? What are we doing keeping this individual? Uh, and usually that sentiment is either um, aggravated by or or given more fuel by the, the, the family, the clients, the residents, generally feeling the same way about this individual. So you've got you've got the town cry for the individual's head on a <laughs> head on a stake, if you will. Right. Uh, and and so uh, it's it's definitely it's a thing that can gain its own kind of momentum. Um, and so again, this is generally the, the diff- you know, a client that's giving difficulty or, or uh, challenge in, in some form or fashion. And so what, what spurred this for me recently is, um, you know, before we get to that level, uh, there are a ton of steps, basically a ton of steps in between where we've got learning experiences and we've got groups and we've got bookings and we've got a, a ton of tools in place that the family can utilize first and foremost. Uh, and then even the staff to an extent after that um, with, you know, the approval of certain LEs, more serious LEs, maybe even leading up to a behavioral contract, uh, which is generally uh, when, a, when a client is placed on a behavioral contract where the, the feeling is, wow, to this client, okay, they're not messing around. If I don't do this, it looks like I'm going to be discharged. Uh, and then you tend to get the client's behavior to shift, at least in the moment where the contract exists. Mm-hmm. Be that as it may, contracts were used few and far between as well because you want to use all the other tools. And uh, it was about, uh, I want to say, maybe a month to two months ago at this point that uh, I was being contacted 
um, by some staff, and, and rightfully so, for a client who uh, was wreaking havoc, for lack of a better term. And uh, the request was to put the client on a contract. And we put this client on a behavioral contract because of A, B, and C. Uh, and then I, I inquired with the staff, well, what had been done prior? You know, have, has this client been taken to group by his peers? Have we talked to this client one-on-one? Has the client been booked? Have we done LEs? Has the family confronted this individual as to why the behavior is what it is and expressed their displeasure with it? And a uh, long story short, sounds like some of that had been done, but some of it hadn't. And, uh, and the general message was, you know, we want, we want to shift our speed because we had recently put a client on a contract. Uh, so this was uh, vying for another client to go on a contract. Uh, that, that we want to shift gears and, sh- and, and shift away from this climate of, okay, now whenever we get a client who is causing some sort of difficulty, that we're just going to put them on a contract. Because like with anything, the more you use something within a community, any singular tool, uh, the less weight it holds. It loses its impact. And I said, you know, basically where we're headed, if we don't allow the TC to do its job, is just becoming a contract factory where we're just going to start stamping out contracts every couple of days. <laughs> Anyone who gives you a problem, you have them sign a contract. And that's not, that's not what the goal is. But um, I, and, and I will, I guess I will put myself in that category as well. I have to, I know in my uh, learning and training and, and, and as I grew uh, as a staff member and into kind of entry level management and, and things of that nature that I was guilty of the same where I might, you know, uh, it's easy to hear a bunch of your colleagues cite reasons A, B, C, D, and E as to why this client should not be here. Uh, And then you've got the other clients kind of up in arms about why is this person still here um, to to fall into that that mindset and to join the bandwagon. Um, And so in that moment, I felt like I could then teach and give some insight to some newer staff members uh, who were feeling the same way that I know I had felt in the past. Uh, but that all gave light to why I wanted to do this show today. And when I, when I called the host and let him know, I said, in addition to just making you aware of the situation that night, I said, I think this would be a good show, <clears throat> excuse me, because all of our shows get recorded and are in the archives, and some of them can be training tools. And I thought that this might be a good training tool uh, for any staff to listen to when – they start to or we start to get into the mindset of, hey, we have a particular client with us at the moment, uh, and it just we are scratching our heads as to why this individual has yet to be discharged because it would feel like they've done everything under the sun to get them to that point. You know, historically, <clears throat> when that ground swell starts mounting of uh, – you know, from the family and staff alike, I've always said or asked the question, okay, so who is going to stand up for that client? Because at that moment in time, it appears that, you know, this mounting groundswell for them to be uh, excommunicated um, is just going to, you know, overwhelm his opportunity, his or her opportunity, well, it's his now, we don't have any hers, opportunity to uh, continue to remain in treatment. 
So I always take the opposite position and want to know if if it's not going to be me, who is going to advocate for this particular person? Because obviously at that moment in time when that groundswell has reached epic proportion, it's very easy to just feed into that groundswell and say, okay, he's got to go. That's the easy decision to make. However, in my humble opinion, even though that's the easy decision, is that the best decision, all other things being equal, because sometimes that is the best decision, depending on what's going on, okay? Um, And sometimes we've decided that this person needs to be in treatment, but they may not need to be in treatment here. They may need to be in treatment there. And that that other environment may be in their best interest and may create a better opportunity for them to succeed. That happens. That's real. Um, But let's say, you know, all other things being equal, um, it's at that moment when that groundswell is at its, its, its highest is that we have to take a step back and find out what's, What's really going on? Who's not doing, i.e. the family? Why is the family not doing what they should be doing? When the family stops working, when they stop, uh, and, and just for all our listeners, when we say family, just substitute the word peers. Okay? When the peers stop doing what they should be doing, what their responsibility is to their other peer members, okay? when they stop doing what they should be doing, okay, then that family construct collapses. And there is nothing that we can do to artificially put that together. It doesn't work that way. That's not how the TC functions. The TC functions, it, it's, it's, it's ground up from the family doing what they're supposed to be doing, doing their work, applying positive peer pressure, force people to look at themselves, change, and so on and so forth. And um, and if they're not doing that, okay, and then let's say staff have to now apply the treatment concepts, okay, that has proven to not be a successful model. Nothing is more powerful than uh, peer pressure when it comes to what we're doing. And even out, yeah. even out there, peer pressure is very powerful. And so that's been proven. We know that. And so when that breaks down, our effort as as staff has to be to re- repair that, get that back going again, because that's the best route to assist that person. Now, obviously, that person's still going to get assistance from the staff in various <clears throat> ways. Okay, but the most important thing we want them to get is attention and intervention from their from their family members. And oftentimes, just like you stated, when when the family has said, you know, we've had enough, okay, our intervention should be to confront them and try and re-energize, because that's what happens, is that, you know, they get to a certain point where they don't see any change manifesting itself despite what they've done, and they give up for lack of a better expression. They just give up. And so we need to re-energize them and actually show them how their efforts have actually been making some progress. It's just not huge, you know, 
uh, progress that you can see from a mile away. You really have to look very carefully. Put those reading glasses on and look real cl- carefully, and you can see small increments of progress being made by this person. But what's overwhelming that is their quote unquote their big explo- you know behavioral explosions, crowding out yeah. their you know their their little small incremental changes that they've made. I'll give you an example. Person comes in their reactor. Cursing everybody out, cursing out their peers, cursing out staff, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? And every day they're just doing that. But over a period of two weeks, three weeks, instead of it happening every day, it's every other day. Instead of every other day, it's maybe every three days. Instead of every three days, it's every four days. Instead of every four days, it's now once a week. So that's progress. Okay? And that has to be noticed progress. And sometimes we have to point that out, not only to the family, but even to the client. You know, hey, you've been, you've been improving. It may not seem like it because the behavioral explosions are so, you know, impactful to the family and to the staff that sometimes that progress that actually is being made is overshadowed. I've always said there's no way someone can be in a residential treatment environment for 30 days and not change something. It's impossible. Yeah, Something yeah, changes. I can see that. So we titled this the Johnnies because I think we used uh, we used uh, Juan Carlos already. <laughs> I yeah, think we used yeah, Juan yeah. Carlos and some other names already. But the Johnnies of the world, yeah, intertreatment, and you know, anyone who's worked in the field, they they've experienced them. Um. They absorb a lot of attention. They absorb a lot of intervention. They absorb a lot of staff time. They absorb a lot of peer time. Okay, um, and they come in all you know different manners of uh, of makeup. Um, you have the ones with the big image that you know use that big image to keep people away and keep people at bay. Um, they use intimidation, um, whether it's uh, physical intimidation, and I don't mean necessarily uh, blatant outward physical intimidation, but it's almost, uh, you know, indirect, you know, covert physical intimidation. It's like the unspoken physical intimidation through body language, facial expression, and things like that. Um, but oftentimes the person is not even aware that that's what's happening, that that is what they're doing. They may not be consciously aware that that's what they're doing, but it is what they're doing. And sometimes just pointing that out to them and making them aware of it, okay, is a revelation to them because they've been doing it all their life. That's all that they know. So it's almost second nature to them to just be that way but not always be aware of that that's how they're coming across and as a result pushing people away from them. Now, it doesn't push everybody away because some people are able to see through that. And as staff, that's our job. We have to see through that and not allow that to prevent us from looking past that, you know, the the image and getting behind and underneath what's really going on with that person. 
and sometimes it's you know it's a ch- it's a chore it's 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 difficult uh and and whatnot but we have to put that chore and that difficulty to the side and do what we need to do and at the same time we have to encourage the other family members to do the same now historically where where would this come out this would come out during the encounter group you know that's that's where we hope where people you know, challenge their fears and put out and put forth, you know, their true feelings about a thing, a person, etc., so that it's out there, it's on the floor. And once it's out there and on the floor, we can look at it, dissect it, and do what we need to do to work with it. If it never comes out, that opportunity is never presented to, you know, to, to do that work. So we want to encourage it. And so what that means is that that, that Johnny, Mr. Producer, that Johnny that you described, in the way I look at it, presents an opportunity for us to do more challenging work. You know, the client that doesn't present those difficulties, okay, they don't challenge you to maybe put aside some of your own fears, your own biases, your own challenges that you may have just with working with other humans and, and, and depending on what they present impacts how you may work with them and or if you work with them, et cetera. And so, you know, as a professional, you're, all, you're, you're challenged all the time. And so you can't just say that, or even if you don't say it, but you can't just, you know, gravitate towards those that are easy, because statistically speaking, okay, now this has not been studied. It hasn't been empirically studied, okay? So this is anecdotal. But from what I've seen, and Mr. Producer, you could speak to your experience, those difficult clients, ultimately, if we are successful in getting them to be engaged, okay, those are the ones that have a high success rate. Because that same okay, say that again. those difficult clients put it this way, you know how a client can walk in the door and in the first week or two they you know they kind of present some aspects of who they are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and oftentimes we may look at a client and say, "Oh, they're not going to make it based on that initial presentation within that first two weeks and thirty days, okay. And oftentimes, it's those clients who, uh, uh, that look like they're going to be very challenging are the ones that people sometimes say, okay, that they're not going to make it. When in fact, it's the opposite. Those clients, the ones that appear to have a difficult road to go, okay, present a very big-time challenge for, for us. Those are the ones that if we are successful in engaging them in treatment, those are the ones who have a higher success rate because their stuff is just out there. There's nothing hidden. You don't have to drag stuff out of them. You just see it. Yeah, yeah, true, true. And if they engage in treatment, it's easy to see what they have to work on, what some of their issues are, and they can see it because they live it. You know what I'm saying? It's just they have, their stuff is just out there. And so if they engage in treatment and, and really attack the issues they need to attack, which a lot of them do, okay, that lends itself to a higher success rate. 
for those clients versus let's go to the extreme opposite, the client that's very reserved, very quiet, doesn't really share a lot, and you, and you really and sometimes have to resort to dragging and pulling and digging stuff out of them in order to kind of further their treatment along. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. I actually think we kind of touched on something similar in another show, um, the idea of the client who puts it all on the table and there's no guessing involved. <laughs> That's right. So, Johnny, in a sense, <clears throat> well, this is why we have to be, you know, someone has to, in that context that you described, when, when it gets to the staff meeting where the groundswell has reached epic proportions and, you know, we're just ready to, you know, hit the eject button on this client, that so, there has yeah. to be someone who takes a step back takes an objective view, an objective look, so that we make sure that we're always giving those clients every possible opportunity and not making rushed decisions based on what may be happening at this moment in time. And, of course, there's a caveat, which we always say, is that as long as there's no imminent safety issue, as long as there's no imminent safety issue, we don't have to make a decision about anyone at this moment in time. We can discuss, we can talk, we can brainstorm, et cetera, uh, but we don't, we don't have to make a decision. Now, if someone forces our hand because they're presenting a safety issue, that's different. Yeah. But Johnny historically has, if Johnny has stayed in treatment and we were successful in getting them engaged in treatment, so difference between staying and engaging. You could stay and just, you know, just be. Okay. Yeah, and just exist. Just exist, not really do the work that you need to do. Um, so if you can engage, if we can get Johnny to engage and do the work, Johnny has a great chance of succeeding, despite what it may look like right now. And that's often what we have to do is we can't look at what – I mean, they're coming – a client comes in at – Theoretically, they're at the lowest of the low. They're feeling the worst of the worst. So what we get, what they present to us is what would be their their bottom rung on the ladder of who they are. And we bring them into our program, and what we want or we say is that we want to give them the opportunity to now work their way up that ladder. And so as they're working their way up that ladder, we're going to experience the good, bad, and ugly with them. And so the question becomes, okay, so when, when, when it's the bad and it's the ugly, can the TC contain that? Can the TC handle that? You know, so that as bad as it may get or as ugly as it may get, the TC can handle it, and that's a question. The T, can the TC handle it so that that client can continue to just move forward, move forward as these experiences are occurring? Not the experience happens and we just stay right there living in that. No, the experience happens. We move forward. However we have to deal with it, we deal with it, but we just continue to move forward. We don't live in that one experience. <clears throat> and that's what we have to make sure happens. All things being equal, of course. 
So you, Mr. Producer, in your role, um, because you're present in your supervisory capacity in these meetings where these things may come up, okay? Um, and I say someone, it could be you, it could be anyone, but someone has to, when, when, that, when that staff meeting um, or even their encounter group, when that groundswell of, you know, you need to leave, you need to get out of here, you know, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, um, someone needs to be the person that steps back and takes the objective view. Even if everybody else has taken the subject, subjective view, one person at least has to be able to st- step back and take the objective view on behalf yep. of that yep. client. I don't know about you, Mr. Producer, but me, I want to be able to go to sleep at night knowing, knowing, feeling, and believing that that I've given every client a and you know a fair, legitimate opportunity to take advantage of their treatment experience. And so I say I, as a singular one person, and that every other person should have that same thing, that same desire that, you know, I want to make sure that each person that comes within my existence, because ultimately I don't want a client to be able to say, you know what, I didn't get a fair shot at OCG. Now, they can always say that. So let me rephrase that. I can't stop a client from saying that, but... I would, if, I, if someone said that, I would want to be able to say, well, you know what? We know for a fact that that person got more than a fair shot. We want to be able yeah. to say that. And part of treatment, you know, Johnny's be, gotta be, we got to be able to let Johnny, you know, make mistakes, make bad decisions. Um. And give him the opportunity to do something different after learning from that previous mistake or previous bad decision. Now, the reality is, is that Johnny may do something that forces our hand. Like we're left with no, uh, there's no other alternative that we do, we have to make a treatment ending decision because of a decision that Johnny made. And then... Exterior forces, you know, so whether it be law, whether it be licensing regulation, etc., requires that we do X, even though we may want to do Y or Z. But we have to do X because the client did this, and the law requires or the licensing regulation requires or our contract requires that this is what needs to happen. So that's the reality of of our situation, the reality of life. Sometimes your hand is forced by exterior forces beyond your control, and it is what it is. But with you know all that to the side, Mr. Producer Johnny, um, I think that the the single most important task for the staff team. And not just an OCG, but any 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 treatment program is making sure that the peers that we rely on to really do the work with Johnny are in, are reengaged in doing that work. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, you don't want them to just uh, leave the conversation feeling defeated and like, oh, I guess we'll just continue to work with this person then because then, you know, without that buy-in, that can be felt. Yep. Yeah, no, very, uh, very insightful stuff. Very interesting stuff. Um, people, you know, and and it's a, it's funny. It's human services. We work, we work in the human services field, uh, and the staff indeed check that same box. You know, uh, staff are humans as well. We aren't robots, and uh, so it can, it can almost be natural to an extent to feel. You know, this client who's not listening to staff, not doing what they're being asked, breaking the rules day in and day out, uh, to say, you know what, this this individual has been booked and they've been spoken to and they've been given out leads. They continue to do what they want. Um, you know, are, are we just a program that allows people to do A, B, and C? very easy to get caught up in that mindset um, and forget kind of, hey, what, what are you here to do? Because that's something that I always I always appreciated. One message you used to deliver back when we were an adolescent program uh, that I have stolen and delivered to a couple uh, of the staff here now is that in any business, uh, you know, you can't say hey, you know what, I've got a great idea for a business. I am going to open up a shop, say, excuse me, where my business, my marketing strategy for my business or or what I want to do for a business is I want to fix people's cars. I want to be a mechanic. I want to fix automobiles. And so you open your doors and you put that into the ether, into your community, your neighborhood, that, hey, you know, Chris's mechanics on, you know, on Woodside Road, uh, you, 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 you have a problem with your car, you bring it, we'll get it fixed. Engine, transmission, brakes, you name it, we'll fix it. And somebody brings a car to your shop, and yeah, yeah, bring the car on in, I'll bring the car on in, I'll take a look at it, and I'll call you when, uh, when I've got a game plan. And I look over the car and see that the engine and the transmission and the brakes are in a condition that don't even look like they belong on a car anymore. They look like they've been sent through a metal shredder followed by an incinerator followed by a grenade. And uh, I call the individual (laughs) back and say, hey, you know what? Your engine has got problems like that that I've never seen. The transmission is no good. I'm not going to be able to... Uh, fix this car, you're going to have to come and get it, and you're going to have to send it somewhere else. And uh, the customer would have every right to say, well, you know, when I researched your company, when I researched your business, you said that you fix cars with problems with engines, transmissions, and brakes. So this is exactly what I brought you, and now you're telling me uh, you can't service it because it's got uh, problems with the engine, transmission, and brakes. And say that is completely backwards. So the same message that we send to the staff that you used to send that I send now is, well, if we tell the county or whomever that we are a program set up to deal with, I'll use the adolescent program as an example since we no longer have the adolescent program. When we did, hey, yeah, you know what? 
uh, we, we're a program that is staffed uh, to handle teenagers who exhibit behaviors A, B, and C. They're wildly disrespectful. They've got problems with authority. They don't listen to the rules. And I send you my teenager, and you're calling me a week later saying, hey, he won't listen to the rules, and he's disrespecting the authority. we got to kick him out. And that's exactly <laughs> what you said that you were going to treat to begin with, uh, it, you know, is backwards. And so we lose sight of that. Hey, we are a program that is designed to and staffed to. We've got professionals all over the place from master's degrees to PhDs to graduates to people in recovery themselves. Hey, we've got a very eclectic, awesome group of staff that that work within a structure that has proven to work for individuals who struggle with chemical dependency, uh, mental health, behavior problems. And the second there's a behavior problem and the person relapses, they got to go. And uh, you, you almost forget what you signed up for and what you're here to do. Well, you hit the nail on the head. That was certainly a pet peeve of mine back in the day with the adolescent program. Because <laughs> uh, you can't complain about the kid not listening to staff and uh, disrespecting staff when the P- the PL or the social worker said, listen, this kid is disrespectful, <laughs> doesn't listen to authority. Yeah. I said, so it's all right, send him to us. And you call him two weeks later. No, I can't do that. Yeah, that analogy is uh, right on the money. Even now with adults, because, you know, treatment, you know, substance abuse treatment, you know, is rarely, rarely. I mean, back in the day, we never, in the treatment context, at Daytop, OCG, anywhere, we never talked about drugs per se. Because we knew that that was primarily a symptom of other things going on. So we wanted to focus on those other things. Um but, you know, resolve those other things, and you don't have to have a drug conversation. Um, today, a little bit different. We do, you know, put, do more education on drugs and their effects on the body and the brain and all that stuff. But the the same thing still applies. You know, most people are coming in with with behavioral issues and and things of that nature, and that's what you know we address. So. But I think the Johnnies of the world, uh, you know, we don't know if they can be saved if we um, until we provide them with the the best opportunity to succeed, and that starts with making sure that the the family remains engaged and that the you know the staff remain engaged and whoever whichever one of the two need to be re-energized that they get re-energized. If you look at and and this just going back to Daytop and I look at the people who you know, became graduates, and, and some of the experiences that they had during the treatment, uh, during their treatment, um, you would, n- no one would have picked them that they would have succeeded and that they would have ended up being graduates because they had a difficult, I can't even say difficult, they had a treatment experience that they had to have in order to get where they needed to get. And that's, yeah. you know what I'm saying? It, it, that's what it was. So... That's that. That's all I got to say, Mr. Producer. That's great. No, that's uh that is great information. Again, um glad that we were able to talk about it and that we'll be able to archive it 
um, specifically because it's a good training tool. Um, sometimes it's hard to take a step back uh, and, and look at it from a, you know from a bird's eye perspective versus you know being directly involved in it because you are in the belly of the beast uh, 40 plus hours a week. Being able to slow down, take a step back, and say, hey, you know what? Really, what is in this client's best interest? Minus, like you said, the, the imminent safety threat, uh, and, and how can we adjust, adapt, change, switch our approach, uh, get creative with our approach um, to, to make sure that we've exhausted every possibility we could think of and some we couldn't even think of before we say, you know what, uh, at this point, it just at this point, it's not even about the client or making our jobs easier or making the facility safer. It's about, you know what, for whatever reason, our program is not servicing this client the way this client needs to be serviced. And, it, and it's almost unethical for the client's sake and, and professionally to keep this individual here um, because th- there's not a progression that we need to see and they might be best serviced somewhere else. And really that needs to be the basis of the conversation, not, Hey, you know, this person's bringing other people down. We, there was the old school, uh, the old school daytop terminology of poison is a poison in the community. And, uh, we're not getting rid of someone cause they're poison. Uh, we're trying to find a more suitable placement maybe for an individual who is just not progressing the way they should be in our, in our, uh, program. Yeah. Oh, on the contrary, because if somebody became poison, and let's say ultimately, okay, that person was discharged from treatment, okay, the family was then held to account for that because they're the ones that allowed it to come to pass. So they didn't get off the hook yeah. just because that person ultimately may have been discharged. No, they were held responsible and were held to account for that coming to pass. Throw that in there. So, Mr. Producer, I just need to point out before we go to break that the song that we're playing, our commercial break song, which is our traditional song we play whenever I've come back from vacation, because since I always drive, okay, always worried about those other drivers on the road. So I just want to let our listeners know what this song means. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, everybody. We do see we have some callers on hold. I believe some are calling in to participate in the recovery support time segment. Others just calling in to listen to the show. Uh, either way, we hope that you all have enjoyed the show to this point. We are going to take a music break, as our host just said. On the other side, we will get to the recovery support time segment. Into this house we're born 
Riders on the storm. 
The producer is screening calls, and I bet when he comes back, he's going to want to drop our usual intro for recovery support time. And he's not going to know that we're ready back live. So if I get interrupted, it's because he unknowingly is going to drop the intro. Anyway, we're going to go to, and he's, he also may drop our X file because that's what we usually do first before we take our calls. We go, uh, we we. Now I know he did that purposely because he knew I was talking. He didn't do it by accident. <laughs> Were you saying something? What was that? <laughs> Actually, what I was telling our listeners is that you forgot to drop the intro for our recovery support time, and I thought that you would just, without realizing that we went back live while you were screening the other calls, that you would just drop it on while I was talking. But anyway, you got me with the uh, X-Files I figured intro. I'd get you one, one way or the other. One way or the other, that's right. Hey, I got a, uh, a question from, um, what's the name here? By the way, Mr. Producer, last week... I'm sorry, the week before, I finally, I'm the last holdout in the family of all the siblings, I finally uh, gave in and went and got my prescription readers. Oh, okay. Are we breaking them out for the X-Files here? Uh, No, the writing is big enough that I can actually uh, see it. 
but okay. I'm looking for there was a it was a it was a great question. Um, oh, here it is. This is from Jerick from San Francisco. When do you know that you finally have your addiction under control? I thought that would be a good a good starter starter question. Throw some controversy out there. Yeah, yeah, it's good to have that out uh, on the table. Well, there's many answers to that question, um, depending on who you talk to. Some will say never. I obviously don't subscribe to that theory. Um, but for me, one that, that I try and tell people is there's one key indicator that you should pay attention to. And that is when when you've been in your addiction over five years, let's say, and certain aspects of your living and being become instinctual, and those aspects are kind of negative. Negative. And so now you get into recovery, and you've been in recovery a few years, more than two, okay? That's kind of the the Mendoza line, two years. Okay, so let's say you're in year five, year six, year seven, and those, and, and let's say um, you hit a trouble spot in your life, okay, and you're being overwhelmed with um, things or a thing is very overwhelming emotionally, and it's something you have to deal with. A key indicator is when something like that happens, what instinctively do you do? Do you instinctively start thinking about medicating what you're feeling? Or do you instinctively start thinking about and or doing the opposite of that, i.e., talking about what you're going through, seeking out others to to lean on, you know, things of that nature. So the instinct for how you respond to emotional upset in your life changes or has changed. So you know you don't automatically think about grabbing a drink, grabbing a smoke, grabbing a pipe, you know, you think about dealing with it in a positive and constructive manner instinctually. You don't have to talk yourself off a ledge and be, you know, routed back to a positive and constructive method, you instinctively go there. When that happens, when your instincts change to, from dealing with things in a negative and destructive way to dealing with things in a positive and constructive way, then you know that you have turned that corner. And the only way you will go back is if you make a conscious decision that's going to be no accident. You make a conscious decision to go back. That's the only way you'll go back. So that's how I would answer the question in terms of knowing that you have your addiction under control. Your instincts have changed in terms of how you deal with upset, how you deal with emotional strife in your life, etc. That's my answer. Uh, yeah, I can't find uh, I can't find any flaws in that one. That makes a lot of sense. Um, kind of 
kind of the nail right on the head. Like you said, you, you got you, you to gotta face it. You got to face it yourself. And, and once you do that, um, you know, you kind of you choose the life you live after that, right? So right. it is all about choice at the end of the day, and I do, I do agree with that wholeheartedly. Okay. Let's uh, sneak a uh, phone call in here. Let's uh, go to uh, Jose from Redwood City. He's been holding a while. Jose, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thanks for welcoming me. Yep. So my question is, um, my brother thinks he could drink beer again because alcohol wasn't his problem. What would I be able to say to him in a way maybe where it wouldn't make him react so, like, instead of thinking that, you know, me being his brother trying to give him some kind of talk in in a positive way, where he wouldn't just shrug it off and say, well, here we go again. You're going to tell me the same thing, and then he wouldn't respond in a positive way. Does your brother, um, did he have any issues with other substances? Well, I haven't been around him for about the last 20 years, so... Okay. Because we separated. I'm 50 myself, so I've been away from the family and I haven't communicated with him so often as I would like. But his uh, mom, our mom, tells me little things about him here and there, but to my knowledge, no. So is it that he just has a, did he have an alcohol problem? No. So what's the issue with him drinking? From your perspective. Because we have these conversations here and there, you know, because the last time I was able to communicate with him because of the simple fact that we haven't communicated and talked with each other for a long time, Mm -hmm. he actually uh, brought up a little conversation about what he went through before. So he said to me how I would think that because in the first place alcohol wasn't his problem that because I suppose it was something else like substance abuse that he doesn't think of the mere fact of drinking would cause him to react in any other way that it could harm him I see okay well for you without knowing more details in terms of whether if and or not that he had issues with other substances and that alcohol could possibly be a gateway for him back to abusing those other substances or he could start abusing alcohol we don't know right. however you put you have to put all that to the side okay unless you see and experience him uh, abusing alcohol. And when I say abusing alcohol, you always use the reasonable person standard, meaning that if another person, a reasonable person, were to see the same thing you saw, they would come to the same conclusion. Okay? And if that's not the case, 
for the time being, for the interim, you put that on the shelf. Because I gathered that your goal would be to what? Re- kind of reestablish a relationship with your brother? Definitely, yes. Right. So you want to put that on the shelf unless you see and feel or experience something glaring which you can't ignore. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So you're basically giving him the benefit of the doubt unless you see something different and focusing on trying to rebuild that relationship between you and your brother. I see. Okay. And you know what? If If something happens, if something comes up, and, you, you know, you, all you can do is speak to it. You can't force another person to do anything they don't want to do, but you can speak to it so that you know for yourself that you spoke to your truth, whatever you see. Um, but always keep in mind what you're trying to accomplish. You're trying to Definitely. accomplish reestablishing that relationship. That's 100% right. Yes, definitely. Okay. Okay, doke. Sounds good to all me. All right. Good advice. All right. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Thank you, too. Have a good afternoon. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Oftentimes, Mr. Producer, um, when we're trying to re-energize a a dormant relationship, um, other things may cause us to lose focus on that you know, re-energizing relationship and we get sidetracked onto other things. Yeah. Now, unless, unless those other things are glaring, which you can't ignore and you got to speak to them, you speak to them, but you got to speak to them in a way that indicates that the reason you're trying to re-energize this relationship is not to address that, but to address the relationship. And yep, we often get yep. we often get sidetracked and caught up in other things, um, or we bring other things into it that don't really have a need to be into it in there at that moment. So we just have to be careful. All right, let's go to um, Julio from the Great San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi, how you doing? So I just wanted to know I'm thinking about going into a program And I've heard that you guys got some um, I heard that there's Co-ed programs And all-male programs What are the benefits of going to a male program All-male program And What are the disadvantages of going to an all-male program Versus a co-ed program what are the disadvantages of what are the advantages and the disadvantages of going to an all male program other than okay. a co ed program? Okay. So the advantages of going to a, uh, an all male program is that there will not be any distractions okay. for the male. The disadvantage will be is that they lose the opportunity to uh, tackle issues that really can only be assisted by another by a female. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I get that because sometimes you know, <clears throat> sometimes it's easier to talk to a female than a than a male. But you know, there are times when you know you need a 
male advice other than the female advice. I get that. So co-ed programs are, like, we used to have a co-ed program. We stopped having a co-ed program. Um, different from reasons why other people d- never did co-ed programs, but the reasons why people don't like co-ed programs is because they believe treatment can happen more See, they can be more focused by each individual if they don't have the distraction of, quote-unquote, the opposite sex. Gotcha. I've also thought about, you know, if I were to go to a um, to a co-ed program, I don't think that the, um, I don't think anyway that the, the males would all get along, you know, as good as they would, you know, rather than going to an all-male program. I think that there will be a lot of... Um, Competition, if you will, there for the wrong reasons. Um, if, you know, that's just exactly. my feeling anyway. That is right. what happens. That's yeah. exactly what happens. Right. Yeah, I think I'm leaning more towards a male program, you know, an all-male program. And, you know, I've heard that you guys got one of the best programs out there right now. And I've heard a lot of good things. And, um, you know, I just, I just really want to go somewhere where I'm going to feel like the people actually care about me. Rather than just you know getting a getting a uh, a paycheck from my insurance or something like that, you know I really want to go somewhere where the people care and where they at least if they don't care they pretend to care. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I heard that uh, you know at least that's not what I heard about OCG. I heard that you know all common ground. You know people actually care and they um, you know they're really there to help people out, really to help them make their make make their lives better. You know. Like I said, um, I, I just want to go somewhere where I feel wanted. Well, that's certainly good to hear. But ultimately, ultimately, it's going to come down to you. Yes, sir. It's going to come down to you. Okay? Got it. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Appreciate it. All right. It's nice to... Here, Mr. Producer, that we are upstanding members of the community. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> um, let me go back to our X files. By the way, just so you know, we have about an uh, inch and a half thick stack of X files, which means uh, we probably have them for the next uh, five years. Who knows? Um, yeah, Jose. From Mountain View, California, says he met a girl. The famous last words I met a girl. I met a girl and I really like her. However, she still uses drugs. Should I tell her to stop or keep letting her do her thing? Jose, isn't that a damn thing you can tell her? You can ask her, but you can't tell her. And after you ask her and put the ball in her court in terms of her life and whatever decision she wants to make regarding what she's doing, that ball splits in half and half of it ends in your court because the question becomes, okay, what are you going to do? Because there's been many a guy who's been in that same position, who has met a girl, and lo and behold, come to find out that that girl, 
or vice versa, that guy um, has got a drug problem and has made the critical mistake, the critical error in judgment in thinking that I can fix it. I can get them to stop and has ultimately found themselves dragged down that same rabbit hole with that person. Now, at the root of that, we know what that's we know what's behind that. Because if you allow someone to drag you down a rabbit hole that you just came out of not too long ago, you pulled yourself out of that rabbit hole and were now standing on your own two feet ready to, you know, restart your existence life in the, in this world on a positive note. And then you have allowed yourself to be pulled back down into this rabbit hole by, as a result of your liking of this other person romantically. And it doesn't end well. And the statistics are very high of it not ending well in the high 90s. So I don't know why people do that, but uh, people do. Um, you know, rom- feelings of romance are very strong. And sometimes it causes people to make decisions that maybe they ordinarily would not make. Um, so, um, Jose, when someone shows you who they are at that moment in time, especially when it comes to drug abuse um, and you're in recovery, um, you have to give them the loving stiff arm until they do something different. Um, and you just have to put those feelings you know, you got to go talk about lost love, whatever it may be, and move on. And who knows what may happen in the future, but if you were asking my advice, I would say, no matter how hard it is, you have to move on from that. Because you cannot fix another human being. They have to do it themselves. So that's that. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Mr. Producer. Uh, we're going to roll with what whatever it is you just said. Um I do agree with the family and the loving stiff arm. Uh, very true, and that can be, obviously, it's a major challenge, which is why we get that question over and over and over again from different callers, um, because it's the hardest thing to do with family. You know, it's one thing to do with a friend or an acquaintance or a colleague or somebody at a distance, but uh, you're connected to family, uh, good, bad, or ugly, and... Um, so navigating that boundary can be a very kind of complex, tricky situation. And uh, ultimately, and in the spirit of the NFL, uh, your statement of the loving stiff arm, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. <laughs> All right. All right, let's go back to our phones. Um, let's go to Nick from the wonderfully great state of New York. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for welcoming me. All right. So my question help you, is, sir. yeah. So my question is, um, what would you recommend so one can stay sober after completing a drug treatment program? Besides, you know, obviously, <clears throat> you're doing your best to stay clean. What What would you recommend, as in, like, hobbies? Um, Ways of processing things, help, helpful tips, 
towards someone that is trying to maintain sobriety and is young in sobriety? Well, I can tell you the biggest thing people don't do that causes them to relapse or not deal with things appropriately, they, especially if they've had a treatment experience, right, they learn or they should learn certain tools to use and put into, and put to, put into practice to help them along the way, to help them deal with things that come up in their life. And what's the single biggest thing people do? They don't use the tools. Mm-hmm. They don't use the tools. Mm-hmm. So if I was to give a singular piece of advice, I would say you've learned all these things, these, all these ways to cope with everything that life can throw your way. You've got these tools under, in your tool belt. Use them. Mm-hmm. Use those tools. Now, as far as hobbies and things like that, that's really an individual thing. You know, what do you like to do? What are you interested in? How do you like to spend your time in a positive way? And try doing those things, and you'll figure out what you like, what you like most, what you like least, etc., and start doing them. Right. This stuff isn't rocket science. It's the doing, you know, just doing these things that people stop, you know, putting into practice. Follow me? Yes, definitely. Okay. <clears throat> um, would you would you recommend from I guess I guess from your own opinion, would you recommend them going to meetings? Or would you say that's more of an individual um more of an individual um decision? Ultimately, it is an individual decision, but I would recommend it for someone just coming out of a treatment program that they stay plugged in to that world by going to meetings. They don't, do they have to go to seven meetings a day? I mean, a week, once a, you know, I, that's, I don't know that answer because that's okay. the individual part. Someone may say, you know what, I, I like to go once a week just to stay plugged in. Someone may say, you know what, I need to go every day to start out and then work my way down to once a week or to, to no, no time a week. Who knows? But, yeah, that is an individual thing. But I would recommend someone go to meetings to start And out. would you also recommend them staying with a sponsor? Like, or yes. maybe not a sponsor, but a support system or a support network or individual or a group of yeah. individuals that are willing to help them? Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. Thank you once again. You're very welcome. Thank you. Okay. Have a good rest of your day. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Good questions, Mr. Producer. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. Who else do we have here? Um, let's go to Francisco. Oh, no, Billy from the beautiful San Francisco. I was reading it backwards. Welcome to the show, Billy. How you doing? Good. How can we help good, you? Good, good. I got a quick question. Um, so well, I, I've been to six programs, and I'm 26 years old. I keep on screwing up. I've had 13 months clean. I've I practiced, you know what I mean? I, I do the steps to the best of my ability. I'm trying to get this thing 
as some um, old-timers from the program. I'm not saying you guys are old or anything, but you guys have some time clean. What would you say to a young kid like me that, you know what I mean, so I don't have to wait until I'm 50 to get clean? Did you say you were 26? Yes, sir. Well, the biggest motivation for you should be not wanting to be 36, looking back when you were 26 and you had an opportunity to take care of business. Right. That should be the biggest motivation. Okay? Right. But that shouldn't be the only motivation. Gotcha. Each time that you went into a program and ultimately didn't succeed at that attempt, okay, all it tells you is that you're not ready. You weren't ready. Because if you were ready, you would have succeeded at that attempt, okay? So only you know in your heart and in your mind if this current experience that you're going through is it for you, that you're ready and you're ready to do the work that you need to do. Only you know that. Right, because when you, I mean, it's hard when you're young, you know what I mean? Especially, like, I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's an excuse or anything, but when all your friends are normal dudes, you know what I'm saying, and, like, you try and go kick it with them, and then they're like, uh, you know what I mean, where have you been, man, you know? And i got to go to these meetings. But, I mean, I've been in the program, I've been out of the room, in and out of the rooms for, like, six years, and I basically was raised in the room. So, I mean, I know that my in order to stay clean, this is the only solution that will work for me, and that works. You just have to implement it. Right, right, right. Awesome, man. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Have a good night. All right. Mr. Producer, how much time we have? Uh, We're working with about 18, uh, maybe like 14 minutes. Okay. Um. I do want to say before we go off air, because I know I'll forget, because you'll ask me, do you have anything else to say? And I'll forget. I'll say no. And it'll be too late to interrupt you while you're in your closing monologue. Um, yes. Our our closeout song today is an oldie, but it's uh, the reason the reason I like it is because it's it mentions all of the neighborhoods from where I grew up. And then added on top of that, it's um, the dudes who are making the song are from Jamaica, so it's got a Jamaican flavor to it. Now, with all that said and done, this last caller here, one of the things that I didn't say to him because it just took taking too much time is about recognizing when that flip has occurred, okay, Um, which we've talked about on this show numerous times, um, and... Oftentimes, well, no, majority of the time, if not all the time, when that flip occurs, um, you know, the the people that experience the flip become very quiet. They're not as talkative, if they were even at all, but if they were talkative before the flip, they're not very talkative after the flip. And that even speaks more to how you and I, Mr. Producer, have described this flip that we're talking about of when someone has either this is their first experience going through treatment or they've been through treatment before numerous times and have not succeeded in their treatment attempt. And this flip 
is when a person knows that this is it. I'm, I'm ready to make that change. And they just know it. Something has happened within them that they feel. But the difference between someone talking about recovery and talking about what they need to do and all that stuff is when the flip occurs to that person, they usually stop talking. Because ultimately, there's no reason to talk. There's no reason to talk. There's nothing to say. You know within yourself what has occurred. Right. And that and now it's just about executing and just about doing. You don't have to brag, you don't have to make an announcement, you don't have to put your name on the pull board. You don't have to do it, you don't have to make any phone calls, you don't have to do anything. And that's what happens. When it when we, we kind of know when someone has had the flip. We kind of see it, we feel it, the body language changes. When they do talk, how they sound is different. So we kind of know when someone has had the flip. But that, you know, they kind of go into a different mode. I think, Mr. Producer, you know what I've called it. It's like a spiritual thing that happens, and they go into just a different mode of being. Um, And so there's not a lot of talking going on. So usually, I won't say all the time, but usually when you have someone – that is talking a lot about their experience and about their difficulties and trying to get a hold of this recovery thing. Um, that person, I always kind of wait to see if there's a time when they stop talking about that, that, and start kind of living their recovery versus talking about it. And you can tell when a person starts living it. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, there's no, uh, they're not on their high horse about it. You just, that person has felt something different and there's been a change and they're just moving forward now, uh, absorbing everything, soaking up everything like a sponge and getting after their life. I think I've told clients over the years that one of the major advantages of when that flip occurs is that your prior energy, which was spent on worrying about whether or not you were going to stay clean, whether drugs, you know, drug abuse was in your history, not in your future. It was in your past, not in your future. All that goes away. You can now, you can now dedicate 100% of your energy, your focus on what you need to do to rebuild your life. Reclaim your life, restart your life, whatever, whatever, however you want to phrase it. But all your energy goes there, no longer on fueling the negative reservations, uh, the worry about, you know, am I going to make it? As you well know, whenever we do, you know, teach about people who have that question, am I going to make it? The very nature of the question indicates. You know, pessimism, you know, a a negative outlook, you know, and that in itself doesn't lend itself well to succeeding. So we got to kind of figure out to remove that from that person, remove that, that negative view, that questioning of themselves. But oftentimes it can't, it doesn't happen until 
that flip happens. There's always a corner of the bag of the person is, and we, we don't always know what that negative reservation is unless they make it public. But oftentimes, it's that negative reservation that's fueling their worry, their concern. But whether or not they want to put it out there is a different story. So, Do we have time for another call or another X-Files, Mr. Producer? Or we have time for one more call, but we'll go uh, unscreened. So we'll have to... uh put our faith in the universe. That's right. Okay. Hi, welcome to our show. We have can we have your first name please and your hometown? Uh Robert and uh uh Holmbill, Oklahoma. How can we help you? Uh well I had a question to ask that um in a situation to where if it's your only, only recovery program you're in, and it's probably much the last step in this area or wherever you're at, should, and a person is having uh, a person, you know, problems with peers or whatever this and that, and he feels uncomfortable, uh, or it feels that maybe because at one point a person in that program may have, or the situation may have got it to where he could have got another charge because people were saying stuff or whatever, and uh, a person should he put should he walk out of the program and put his freedom before his recovery because he don't want to get a chance to catch a charge because somebody set him up to catch a charge or saying something that's not true that would actually catch him a charge and send him back to prison even though he's here voluntarily but he has a I mean he, uh, should he put uh, freedom before recovery. It sounds to me like you're saying that well you don't have any control over your actions and so if you stay if you stay uh with your recovery process you might end up back in prison. No, I'm saying that if a person is in a situation where people are saying stuff that really did not happen at a pro- program and it didn't and it could actually by just that statement get him because a write up that may his probation officer sees and goes, "Oh well, shoot, well, that's kind of crazy." And then the probation officer violates that person and sends it to the DA for another charge. So the person just go, well, you know, I'm not going to take this chance again. I just, I'm not, not going to take a chance of that happening again because I'm, if a person's a, uh, you know, a peace person and they're not really in the violence, but the way the other people saw it, they only saw it for uh, a walk up as they were walking up when the situation occurred and they seen it from their point of view, and they so made an accusation I, that could get that person sent to prison. So can I tell you from my experience? Uh, in 29 years, I have never encountered an incident occurring in a, in a treatment program, and I'm not just talking about ours. I'm talking about any treatment program that, I, that I've been associated with in terms of having colleagues that work in them, et cetera, where something that happened in the program was the cause of someone being violated and sent to prison. Okay, I was just kind of curious of that because a person that, you know, may have been in that situation, wherever program he's in, so, let me uh, ask you goes, this. man, I don't know if I should take this chance again just to stay to the, stay to the place he's in and go, shoot, man, what if it happens again? And they go, well, see it happen again. You know, and they go, well, and then the probation officer is going, well, man, it happened then, and then now it's happening again. 
And it could just be uh, people just hating on a person, really, in the program. Well, I would, I would, I would advise you to uh, focus. Not advise me. Advise a person. I'm just saying for anybody. Well, I would advise anybody, but I'm talking to you, so I'm just saying you. Okay. To focus on what is ultimately the most important, and the most important should be recovery. Okay. That should be the even most though, important. Even though the place that he's in may actually, uh, it, that could occur again, and the people could team up on him again and say stuff that's not true. But then again, nobody knows what is true if it wasn't there. So to me, it's, it's, there, there, there you go. That's why I say that's you can why spend the hours going. Wow, how do they know? Because if they got a, you know what I mean. But you can spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours with the what ifs. That's what I'm saying. Right. Instead of worrying about the what ifs, focus on you. Focus on your recovery. Okay. And usually, if a person does that, okay, everything else. Doesn't matter. I understand what you're saying. You're saying basically to my recovery. Exactly. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. Thanks. Mr. Producer, remember what we were talking about earlier about the distractions and getting caught up getting caught up in distractions while you're trying to get your recovery thing going. So easily oh, people can get, get distracted, and next thing you know, boom, they're somewhere else doing something else, and their recovery is no longer what's important to them, and 10 years are wasted. Absolutely. That, I mean, that's the thing. And kind of like you said in my uh... – my history with the field is not nearly as long as yours, but I've also never seen anybody brought up on any kind of criminal charge or violation uh, based on anything in the program that there was any kind of question about, like false false information, for lack of a better term. Right. Well, I think we're out of time. Or I don't know if we're out of time. You're the timekeeper. Yeah, no. I could, we, uh, I, could, I could see the time on my screen, but I have no idea how much time is actually left. Yes, no, no. We uh, we are, you know, you'd have like 90 seconds if you had any kind of burning desire. Well, let's just re- say again, our next show is going to be on September 11th, and we're going to have a special guest, Kenya Bradford, who was a former OCG employee. Actually, yeah, actually, I'm sorry, former Daytop employee of ours at Daytop California back in 99, 2000, 2001. I think she was with us for three years when we had the adolescent girls, and she worked in the girls program. And um, she's written a book about that experience, okay, um, and we're going to have her on. Now that's going to be exciting. It's always yep. fun to have a show where you got a guest, but then a guest with such an intimate history with the company and one who has gone on to uh, to make that make that experience one that can be read by all. That should be that should be a very 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 good show. So yep. definitely looking forward to that. Okay, beautiful. Well, uh, well done show. One for the archives, almost certainly. 
we we were happy to be back. It had been a while since we had chatted with everybody, but uh, we're back, and hopefully we'll get back in our every other week swing of things. Um, as always, we thank everybody for their support, either via listening to the shows in the archives or calling in just to listen. Um, of course, the callers who call in to support the Recovery Support Time segment, a uh, huge shout-out and thank you to all those folks because that is the reason we do the show. Uh, and we will be excited to come on with a guest show next on the 11th. Uh, until then, we wish everybody a safe and productive couple of weeks and a safe and fun couple of weekends. We will catch you all on the other side. Now this one. Uh-huh. Kingston. Uh-huh. Linden. Uh-huh. Springfield. Uh-huh. Farmers. Uh-huh. Merrick. Uh-huh. Jamaica. Uh-huh, hillside, King Yellow, Where? Queen City, USA, I do my thing, fellow, without the bling, hello, hey, yo, I'm driving slow, cha-cha, checking out the flow, King Tubby Duck style on my stereo, thinking about a cut a rug, rubber dub, bubble at the Q Club, type of female, just for DL, little miss, uh, that's what I'ma call her, and she gon' have to check for me, for me, I'm not a baller, chip up that, wrong, and now I'm and check me out in five minutes, when you're finished, with a Guinness out, I'm not about that, I need a gal pick me from ligony into me, hitting me till she's sick of me. Picture me on Fran Lewis, potholes and sewers. Street connoisseurs making left, right maneuvers through the traffic. See some schoolgirls, they dress graphic. Your mind don't get hurt. Go on, do your own work. As I splurt and catch the light on Linden, rev the engine. And say one love to my brethren and the legend. Head bopping, joint knocking. Shorties on the corner acting like they wanna hop in. I'm not stopping, I'm pushing up the OGs. You can smell the steamed fish food, the rice and peas. Drag it and get a rich, selling bootleg flicks. He like, walk and start, wanna get rich and switch. I'm like, cool, Aya. Walk and see you, Naya. You know, saying things like that, you're on fire. Uh, fly the gate, wait, that's when I seen her. Young, fresh, and greener. Word up, I'm trying to meet her. So while I'm about to push up, I hope she ain't stush up. I reach the front, then she look up. My name is DL, so tell me what your name. Wait, let me guess. Precious, you have me under pressure, saying, and then she says your name. Josephine. That girl, your name Josephine. Say what I mean. Josephine. That girl, your name Josephine. Say what I mean. Josephine. That girl, your name Josephine. Say what I mean. And then she said, please do, tell me where you're having I said, hopefully it's you I'm having, candlelight with salmon And maybe later on, we can do some ballroom dancing And if you like the lovers rock, I call her Barry Tammons I see love from a distance, uh. coming Word, so where you from, Kingston, which part, Barbican, where you tech, dollar band Yo, let me take you home, then she said no, but you kinda cute, I take your number I said, what a bumper, and then I checked the bumper Yo, let me get a pen, I'll be home around 10, and if you just let me in, I'll be your new best friend. Now just when I'm about to leave, yo, she pulled me by my sleeve and said, DL, what? Well, you don't want a food for eat? I said, of course, mama. 
Yo, it must have slipped my mind. If you have a little time, Please. won't you run it down the line? But we're after oxtail, stew, peas, jerk chicken, uh-huh. curry gourd, thrown stew, coke put in the kitchen, okay. red snapper, kingfish, escovite style, mm. scotch bonnet, pepper, if you want it, hot or mild, right. chicken foot, cold cod, beef, red pea soup, no sarah ZNG, red striped carrot juice, Sound good. patty coca bread, and we're after bun and cheese, and the black kid. Now can I take your order, please? I stood there for a second, undressing her in my mind Told myself it shouldn't have to be pressing her in my mind Conscious was saying, if you wanna pull it, be smarter You gotta act like you ain't checking, she'll be sweating you harder I'm like, true, made the order, we shook hands and said bye As I looked, shorty gave a sexy wink with her eye And I turned with no reply, like she wasn't a queen Like I'm not checking, two months now And I'm still thinking about Josephine Josephine That girl your name Josephine 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 Queensborough, uh huh, Brooklyn, uh huh, Bronx, uh huh, uh-huh. Long Island, uh huh, ATL, uh huh, Miami, uh huh, Jersey, uh huh, Cali, uh huh, Texas. Josephine, if you're listening, <laughs> give me a call. You got the number. <laughs> One love. That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until